Hello, and welcome to the MIG Plus One podcast, where I sit down with industry leaders to discuss the project to product movement. I'm Mick Kirsten, founder and CEO of Tastop and best-selling author of Project to Product, How to Survive and Thrive in the Age of Digital Disruption with the Flow Framework. Today, I'm very happy to be joined by David Anderson, Director of Technology at Liberty IT. David is a lifelong programmer that I've had the privilege of crossing paths with on occasion. I've admired how David connects his deep technical knowledge to business value. So when I heard the progress that David was making on deploying the cutting edge of serverless computing at Liberty Mutual, I realized I had to share his unique approach with our community. So with that, let's get started. Welcome, everyone. I'm here with David Anderson. And David was introduced to me by Adrian Cockcroft shortly after we were debriefing on that pretty amazing to me podcast that Adrian and I did a couple months ago. And what really fascinated me, if we reflect back briefly on the way that Adrian looks at cloud for CEOs, cloud for executives, and really making the case is it's not about reducing costs. It's not about infrastructure. It's really about optimizing and just dramatically shortening your feedback loop through flow. So really reducing flow time or time to value is the number one metric that people should be looking at. And as we were talking about this, Adrian introduced me to the work that David's been doing at Liberty Mutual IT. And it's absolutely fascinating because I think we've got an example here of exactly the right direction architecture to enable this kind of fast feedback loop, what, what Adrian called, to applying the theory of constraints to your OODA loop. So I've invited David here. David, uh, I'd like you to introduce yourself in a second. And I really want you to listen for what you're going to hear as a both executive and technology message on how to actually move into the future of cloud and how to most importantly, apply that to innovation to your business. So, David, welcome. Thank you, Mick. Welcome. Great to be here. And so, before we get into the kind of the, some of the deeper concepts, tell us just a little bit about how Liberty Technology is structured, how your organization fits into the overall company, and then I'd really like us to dig in to really understand how you so quickly got to this place of innovation and architecture that I think so many organizations are, are striving for. But tell us a bit about Liberty IT. Well, Liberty Mutual, I think that Fortune 100 insurance company, where I think we're the fourth or fifth largest PNC insurance company in the world, and um, over 100 years old. Liberty IT, approximately 600-person organization based in Belfast and Dublin, and we're almost like an internal software house for Liberty Mutual. There's the broader technology organization, which you know we, we are part of. But kind of our remit within Liberty IT is really to, you know, progress technology and kind of engineering within Liberty Mutual, the enterprise. So we work with all parts of Liberty Mutual. And I've been at Liberty around, I think, around 12 years. Okay, great. And just to cut quickly to the chase here, what you've done within your organization is actually much more forward-looking in terms of cloud architecture than I'm used to seeing. Now, from a technology point of view, it makes sense. I think this is the future of how we're going to do cloud computing. But tell us a little bit about what's happened, because when a lot of organizations, a lot of executives are just trying to wrap their heads around you know, Kubernetes and containers, where you've ended up is actually somewhere quite different and what I actually believe is uh, significantly ahead of that. So, so tell us a bit about your journey and where you've ended up in terms of your thinking around serverless. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so I like to say it's our, our journey towards serverless first. And about, I think it was around six or seven or maybe even 10 years ago, our CIO, James McLennan, we kind of kicked off three big initiatives or moved to public cloud or become more kind of, you know, customer centric and our agile transformation. 
and we kind of did those three things at, at roughly at the same time. And that set us off in a really good trajectory. And then as we started to move towards public cloud, we put in some really solid cloud native principles. And that really helped define, like we worked with our finance, security, all, you know, all our different parts of the organization. And we figured out what does a really good cloud stance look like for a large enterprise? And we figured out like six years ago. And so we started that kind of infrastructure move, you know, while doing that agile transformation and becoming extremely customer centric in how we think. So back around, maybe around that time, myself and my team were kind of huge fans of Wardley mapping and we started to see kind of Simon's work as, as he was working on it. We were kind of following along with him right back in the early days, maybe 2014 or so. And we started thinking, okay, when we reach the cloud, when we are agilely transformed and when we're customer centric, what next? So we started to map out, so how do we become innovative? How do we bring in speed, you know, like fast feedback? How do we make sure we focus on the value? And how do we become like a learning organization? We don't want to stand still. So we started to wordly map out this kind of landscape of the cloud. And it kind of landed on serverless. We kind of thought that's the perfect direction for us to start thinking about. You know, while the bigger organization is doing that kind of cloud infrastructure move, then we need to look at the application architecture move, which is the layer on top of it. So how are we going to behave when we're in this cloud native world? And that can lead us towards the serverless first strategy that we're talking about today. Back then, we didn't really know what it was called. I think Lambda had just come out. We were just experimenting with Lambda. Lambda and S3 were kind of interesting, but this whole serverless first movement hadn't really started yet. So we were quite lucky that we can really see forward. And I'll, I'll thank Simon Wardley and his mapping technique for giving us the vision to see far forward. Okay, so I want to unpack that just a little bit before we continue, because the, the thing I too commonly see, right, is that the move to cloud comes from a let's reduce costs, let's move off our data center, which results in lift and shift, which results in not much change and potentially higher costs, right, at least initially. What you've done is something different, which is become more customer-centric, create the worldly map from that, and then that led you to a very different place in terms of your, your service architecture. And again, I think for our listeners, we'll, we'll define that, that soon if you're not familiar with it, but just a much more effective place in terms of you know, flow and feedback to the business. So it's actually quite interesting to me, and I'm definitely a fan of worldly mapping. Just tell our listeners a little bit about what worldly mapping is and what this worldly map looked like that, that brought you to, I think, a very unique place, and again, ahead of your peers. There's kind of two axes. There's kind of the value chain, which is your kind of your gradual, you know, if you start from the customer and work your way back from the kind of value chain, that's your kind of standard way of doing kind of value mapping. But then what Simon has done is put on this kind of movement, this evolution, where on the very left, it starts with genesis, things that are brand new that no one has done. And then it's kind of like custom that you kind of, you figured it out, but you can't really repeat it. Then you're in the product where you can actually repeat something and then something becomes a commodity. When a component is commodity, it's not worth building it anymore. Just go and rent it somewhere. So what we started to do was we looked at how we would create value with the business in our kind of technology platform. So we started to look at things that were maybe customer product and thought, well, if, if that's going to move, what happens next? What's the next piece in the value chain? Back around six years ago, we were we were focusing a lot on compute, you know, but you could, you could quite easily see that compute was going to become a commodity very quickly. So you kind of thought, okay, well, what then? And they say, well, is there a certain framework that will be the one framework to rule them all? I say, no, that's going to become quite so we, we As we worked our way up the value chain, you kind of go, well, what next? What next? And then so you, you can predict the movement and you can also spot inertia. Is there potential blockers to that movement? Is there a technical decision we might make today 
may prevent that movement. So once you can kind of see that piece of inertia, you can say, well, that, let's avoid that. And let's make sure when, when I'm in kind of, you know, enterprise architecture type discussions, let's highlight that maybe that's not a good move because there's a potential inertia point. So I think with that far reaching vision forward, you can kind of see, and I mean, I think was it like, you know, that the kind of soft readings of the world type movement, you just know the software is going to become faster and faster and faster. So it's quite obvious to us to keep a really clean kind of architectural stance on. And then one of the things that we thought was, that I think is really nice, is Amazon talk about, you know, no one-way doors. As you build your architecture, don't do things that will shut off things in the future. So always leave a two-way door that you can back away from things. You, you can maybe change your decision. So that was a really important way of thinking. So we we try and bake flexibility into what we do. Okay, excellent. And so I think this it was the worldly mapping that catalyzed your and the organization's thinking around value to the business, value to the market, yeah. which I think it, it's so great at doing. And interestingly got you to sort of a new point in the space, right? Because it actually led you, I think, you know, further in the map to actually, a, you know, a serverless architecture where, like you said, very few people knew about anything other than Lambda back then. So if you could just define for us at a high level, what serverless architecture is, is, you know, is it just, I think a lot of people might be thinking it's just the nickname for the next type of implementing, but what really is serverless architecture? And tell us a little bit about your learnings and your journey with Lambda as well. The thing that we started to notice is that when we started to, we have a foundation on strong engineering. And when we start to move engineers into the space, they almost naturally want to go fast. So any work that they're doing that doesn't seem valuable for our, our customer, you know, they were starting to think, well, why, am I, why do I need to do this? So we used to term undifferentiated heavy lifting. Like, why am I spending two or three days doing this thing? It's invisible for my for my business. So we started to use the term undifferentiated heavy lifting. And how can we remove that? So things like provisioning a server, like you don't need to be doing that. Writing the configuration for a, a runtime, a workload. I mean, that's you don't need to spend days and days at that to maintaining that. So trying to kind of reduce those things that you shouldn't be doing. So as we see things like you know, S3, Lambda, and other kind of serverless services, can I just maybe, you know, bind in something? and use a bit of compute or use that service in a way that's almost event-driven. And I think event-driven is key because the fact that you can have a very loosely coupled architecture where things can just event off each other, which gives you a huge amount of flexibility. So we started to come to the conclusion that serverless first, it's not about functions as a service, okay? That's just the underlying compute model. It's not about even the, the cost model. It's about, you know, the way it's the pay-per-use. It's not really about that. It's not about Lambda, definitely not. It's more about finding business value quickly. So what I started to notice that I st when we had teams writing with this kind of serverless-first mindset, their first implementation choice is a serverless component, they weren't starting back at an on-prem Java framework and working their way up through all that evolution. Like we've done that. So let's start at the end now and use a, a kind of service approach to kind of build our new technology. And if it doesn't work for some reason, we'll fall back to pass or a containerized solution. And that's fine and that's perfectly acceptable. And we have some great software running in containers and pass solutions. But you know, let's start with serverless and fall back if required. So that means that we noticed that the engagement of the engineers was just skyrocketed. Everyone loves working in this environment. We noticed that people could actually produce software a lot quicker. And then the quality of that software is quite high because you have some of the security considerations are better because you have less exposure. Some of the, the scalability is there. You get out of the box. So you start to all these non-functional requirements. A lot of them are kind of taking care of you. Now, I wouldn't say it's faster. 
it's still very difficult, but engineers are really more effective and efficient with their time, which I thought was absolutely fascinating. Yeah, exactly. I think this thing that you hit on this undifferentiated heavy lifting, you know, I think, as you know, with my journey, what I've been trying to do is help organizations find where their bottlenecks are, right? Basically apply the theory of constraints as you've been doing. And I think in a fascinating from first principles, identifying these bottlenecks, because what we so often see is that the sheer amount that developers spend on working on provisioning environments, configurations, and Kubernetes, and these things help. But if we actually dig into the areas where flow efficiency is most affected, where the bottlenecks are, so much of this goes into this heavy lifting. And I think what you realized so early on is that, and I think the phrase is perfect, I'm going to start using it now that you've said it, David, and I hope others will as well, is that it's undifferentiated heavy lifting. So if you're taking it, looking at it from the point of view of the customer, all of that configuration, all of that time is not going to something that measures value, which is why, of course, with, with the flow framework, these flow items, they only measure the flow of value. So instantly, all of that heavy lifting gets seen as something that's not adding to the flow of value because you're doing it repeatedly every time you're, you're trying to create a new application or bring something new to your customers internally or external. And I love that strategy, right? Is that you start with the thing that's got the least undifferentiated heavy lifting. So it sounds very obvious when you say it, but can you just give us a little bit more summary on how innovation happens in this kind of environment, what you're providing to your developers and contrast that with, I think, what you saw before, right? Because so many of our listeners are still trying to wrap their heads around, you know, what benefits will we get when we move from this, you know, an on-prem Java applications to moving those into the cloud to containers. But really, where I think, again, where you've ended up shortcuts a big part of that journey, even though you've been very thoughtful around the parts of your portfolio, because like everyone else, you've got a large portfolio falling back to containers or onto paths and potentially something still on-prem. So... Yeah, well, I think a lot of the controls we put in from our kind of, what I'd say, our, our, our kind of centralized cloud teams, our resource tagging, our continuous deployment, our pipelines, our security controls, finance, exact, you know, they will work for many different types of solutions in public cloud. So once you stand that up and you kind of get to that, you know, that we, we bake those controls into the environment, then we almost went up a gear because then we thought, well, now, if you switch around, we've got these controls baked into our environment and there's one path to production. You know, we do things like auto-remediation. If, you know, if something is tagged incorrectly, it's gone, it's, it's zapped. Do you know, so we're very hard on, on our own times. So then once you get to those controls, then you say, well, now how can we speed up our engineers? So we started talking about, and it's not really about reference architectures as such. Like this is how you build something. I think reference architectures were interesting yesteryear, but now it's much more. I love the Lego analogy. Give me good Lego building blocks and then I can build something fantastic. Mm -hmm. And the more complex the building blocks, the faster I can build. So we started to look at templating patterns, architectural patterns, and that led us to uh, CDK, the Cloud Development Kit, where we started creating quick patterns that developers could maybe generate an API within a couple of seconds, a couple, you know, like within a minute, and there's a production-ready hardened API, and then you, with all your correct taggings or your some well-architected features built in, so then you've got an accelerator where people can take these building blocks and start to build applications faster. But in order to get to a place where developers could do that. We've kind of got a system where we have a high level of engineering, which we encourage. We're quite team-centric about how that works. We encourage people to um, become experts in cloud, you know, understand the cloud for its 
you know, read the white papers, actually get behind cloud, not just use it as another kind of system. And then you can use these kind of enablers to go really fast. I would call these serverless first building blocks. And it just so happens that last year, AWS brought out a CDK, which again is perfect. Before that, when we were using CloudFormation, it was a bit trickier because it was a bit, the, the syntax of CloudFormation is a bit more complex, but CDK has been an absolute game changer. But again, the point is those, those building blocks for developers, having expert developers design those is absolutely critical. Okay, and so you're now at the point, actually, even further in the journey, of course, where you've got those Lego blocks, right? You've got these con- consumable services and, and development kits for developers. So that that is just amazing. And can you tell us, how did you make this case? And how did the organization really support something that, again, at that point in time, when you started this journey years ago, and I think still at this point in time, this is, this is extremely cutting edge, right? So whether there was you know perception of risk that we're trying to you know get ahead too high you know too far away from what others are doing how were you actually able to make this case to the organization of course you know we heard what you said which is the customer centric mandate that brought you to cloud i think really this is the underpinning of everything because the, the thing i keep coming back to and hearing what you're saying david is organizations that have a cost centric mandate of moving to cloud I see them go sideways at best, yeah. right? Whereas this customer-centric mandate brought you to something that I think to others initially would seem so risky, which is let's bet on on Lambda on something very few, you know very few of our peers are using at that point in time. But it's actually brought you to the place where I think you're the point you just made with this common set of controls. It actually sounds like you're managing even risk and delivery and in the pipeline better than others who might be stuck in in older ways of doing things. So how? How did you make the case? And then, of course, get the ongoing support and investment within the organization because you've pivoted and learned as you've gone along. Yeah, no, that's a great question. I mean, for me, like I think like Liberty is a it's over a hundred year old company. We've always thought of technology as a differentiator. Like it's not the IT department. Technology is a key part of how we how we drive our business forward. You know, it, it's we think completely in a digital manner. That that's just table stakes. But the thing I thought was really interesting is like we, we don't really sit down with our business partners and talk about, you know, Lambda, provisional concurrency, step functions. You know, that's not how you just say, well, what's the goal for this book of business? You no, know, is it fast throughput? Is it low cost? You know, what do we need to do to improve the, the customer's experience? You know, what, what's on your mind as a business partner? And when you, we start to get down that, maybe it's something I need something to market quickly. Something needs to be at low cost. We need to improve the experience you find out like, what's the actual business imperative behind the piece of work you're on it's not just a project you know we need to do a to b and we'll be done by christmas it's like what are we trying to get out of this so once your engineering team understand that and they've got the skills to actually build that plus all the product skills as well to do all the the, you know, the empathy etc that the, the proper design knows that that whole package brings together but then you want to be in a, in a place where effectively you've got get power tools in the hands of your engineers and they understand what the business are after i mean you know the business don't ask us can you make that secure and make it performant you just know that you have to do those but we had some early wins like we'd really solid cloud foundations and then we had some really strong early wins one story was about, I think it was 2016, 2017. We'd started experiment with natural language processing around kind of our call centers. And how do we bring in, you know, kind of voice into like, how do we bring the Alexa experience into some of our call centers? 
And we looked around, you know, different options for doing that. And there was all these huge, some great vendors, but expensive and, you know, long tails. We thought, we reckon we could build that ourselves with a serverless mindset. So we actually, we built a working prototype in 12 weeks that we put into production. So, I mean, we probably wouldn't have signed a contract with some vendors in 12 weeks. So we were able to in-house, we built a fully serverless chatbot in production in the call center that was able to speak with policyholders with natural language and have a conversation. And so what we did was we had a very small number of calls that it was kind of handling. We went through an awful lot of kind of really strong design principles to figure out what that should be like, and, and we tested the customer experience. And it was things like very simple queries. You know, uh, when will my rental car be ready? Next Tuesday. Okay, thanks. You know, stuff like that. So we put that to market in 12 weeks, production ready and hardened, and then we just scaled that. And now it hits, I think it takes something like 200,000 calls a month. And, and then when people say, wow, how did you do that? So well, we used the service approach. So it's kind of like show, don't tell. You know, when you get a piece of work that it's, it's ready for this type of technology, then that's how you show it. You've built it quickly. It's performant. It's cost effective. It just takes all the boxes. For me, that's cloud native, being able to be very innovative and responsive. And as well, the fact that you can turn things around really quickly. If someone asks for a feature, you can have it, you know, in production in a matter of days, not months. As you know, I couldn't agree more, right? That, that, that is the, the pattern of success that I'm seeing in terms of helping bring the organization to invest the right ways and empower the right people to, to create these, these modern cloud architectures, where it's if you're demonstrating now something that was meaningful to part of the business, like this bot for the call center, and you're showing that this thing had a flow time that's measured in days, not what everyone's been seeing on the other parts of the portfolio, right? Weeks and months, and that's measurably there, providing value and then scaling up. It's amazing how infectious that becomes and how quickly it can, it can bring the organization forward. And there's tons of examples where we've done that. Like that was just one of the early ones that was quite significant. We're repeating that pattern time and time again. And, and even to something, we actually did something recently. We had a homeless organization in Dublin that spoke to one of our engineers, a guy called Landy O'Sullivan, and he was just doing a bit of kind of outreach work. And they say, you know, we, we'd really like an app to do some certain things. And he can looked at it and there was like budgets. There was no budget. So he built something really quickly in serverless that they're able to use as part of their kind of reach out to kind of um, homeless people in Dublin. So even building really quick applications that work or hardened and low cost, it's, it's absolutely incredible. But, and this is the most important thing for anybody who's receiving this software, it doesn't sound like IT. It's a partner enabling their problem with technology. So that's just a game changer. There's no requirements, documents, big lead-in times. It's like, what do you want? Boom, there you go. So that it's, it's that fast feedback. It's it's incredible. That is an amazing story. And I think it, you know, it's a heartening story and how quickly those things can spread and the value of you know for the business, for the community of being able to innovate so much faster. So this goes back to your approach with this, right? I, you know, you didn't create the Kubernetes team and the Lambda team. The, the way that you even think about team structures, and, you know, to me, of course, the most interesting thing is aligning product value stream, so the way that you can deliver value, such as you know, through that homeless application, through the structure of your software architecture, which you've aligned through you know, cloud native and serverless, and through the team structure. So tell us that because in the end, if the team structure is, is aligned to technology less than is aligned to business value, there's a mismatch. So tell us a bit about how you think about that angle of things. Because again, I think it's getting all these three things right that really drives some incredibly fast results. So 
Yeah, I think like I mean, like I say, we're, we're big fans of team topologies. I think the work Matt Skelton and Emmanuel Pa have yes. done is, is fantastic. It, it's really helped our thinking, and we've always thought that the team is the unit of delivery. You know, it, it's not a bunch of people; it's the team. So you look at that team, and do they have what they need, the expertise, the capability, etc. And I think, and then even that that leadership within that team are are that team able to sit with their business partners and actually you know figure out what is needed i think for me the interesting thing about the insurance industry as you probably people think it sounds like it's quite you know risk averse and you know no one does anything it's, it's probably quite the opposite we understand risk exceptionally well and it's really about if you've got that team aligned to business it's really about how can we find the value like how can we find something that's going to be a, a differentiator to build and having the courage to say, okay, that's what's needed. Let's go ahead and invest and build that. Or we don't need that. Let's stop. So it's almost like, you know, the courage to build and the courage to stop. One of the things I find fascinating about, about serverless, and it's something we, I'll take on a slight tangent, it's something, it's a mindset we started to get into the teams is code is a liability. Mm-hmm. You know, we're all like, you know, I'm a, I've been writing code since I was probably it do you know what i mean love writing code but you have teams of builders and they want to build so you say well but when you turn up the work your job is not to build your job is to help your partner achieve their business need and sometimes that is not writing software it's whatever that is so getting that aspect that understanding code is a liability and this, this i think this is really strong for our business partners it's not an asset when you write a piece of code that's not an asset you need to protect it's a liability and the more you have of it, the greater the risk, the security risk, maintenance risk, deprecation, et cetera. So the less code, the better. It's the system that's the asset. So spend time getting the system right and try and do as little code as possible. And that's the thing that's been a real kind of game changer. So as we start, and I mean, you can think of Lambda as kind of glue. You're just tying things together, you know? So it's a different way to think about building technology. So getting that code as a liability mindset into the teams has been really important because sometimes you know a business partner will say you know i've seen something we need to build x and you need to say well yes that's a good idea and if we understood the business problem fully we could maybe have a few alternatives where we maybe we don't have to build something so i think getting the teams in the right mindset to create value i think has been really really important and one thing the team topologies has has given their teams is getting the team to focus on either a value stream a complex value stream, yeah. enablement, helping others, or even platform. Because we do have some teams building platforms, but they need to understand that's their primary focus. It's what's always a red flag for me when a team say, yeah, we've got a value stream and we're helping these guys and we're also building a platform. I think, okay, well, that's that's not good. Yeah, exactly. And for anyone who might not have heard it in terms of, I think I'm, I'm a big fan of team topologies. We did a, an earlier project podcast with them because in the end, these topologies are the patterns that will actually allow you to understand how to align your teams to value streams and different options that you've got. So it's a great thing to look into. And I think it is, it is one of these principles, David, that you're reflecting here, right? And so let's, let's just talk, you know, you, you mentioned undifferentiated heavy lifting, right? And I think that applies regardless of what your architecture is today you need to be looking for the undifferentiated heavy lifting that's, that's not contributing to your flow in any way, right? Or your feedback cycle. It's actually impeding it. And the, the point on code is a liability. Again, I, my view is that applies universally. 
So like you, I'm a fan of event-based architectures. Our core products have shifted to those, but we still have you know, some legacy that's not event-based. And the, the, the thing we celebrated last week in my company is how much code was removed from an old, very much older product line because now we've got less liability there, right? And I think sometimes we do overfixate on just, it's, it's always around technical debt reduction, but really elevating technical debt reduction, that, that whole point of, of the flow framework is to allow you to invest in removing that liability. And I actually do see the same thing as you, right? Organizations that actively remove code, actively remove liability, are able to, to move complex portfolios ahead much faster. Yeah. And I think that the flow framework is fantastic for actually visualizing some of these things. And you can see the different kind of impacts that are kind of hidden. Because, you know, as you talk about technical debt, there's also business debt. Because I think sometimes if you've been in, in a certain line of business for maybe, you know, 10, 20, 30 years, you know, it, it will grow extra complexity. So I think it's, I think something like the flow framework gives that visibility in, in, in the how you're kind of, how, how things are kind of playing out and then you can actually identify either the technical debt or even business debt which which gives you a great indication of what to go for next yeah i'm glad you make that point i think it, you know the goal of the flow framework is just to actually allow executives other parts of the organization very different parts of the technology organization to see the dynamics that you see right to see the dynamics that you're reflecting and that you were actually able to to steer your organization through by actually understanding these trade-offs right it has been amazing for me to see as I've been looking at more and more of these where the biggest constraints are. Because in the end, I think I think this is truly about what what Adrian Cockrell said on the podcast, which is applying the theory of constraints to your observe, orient, decide, and act loop, your OODA loop, right? So hmm. you've been doing that all along. I've been trying to make those constraints more visible because there are these different it basically, theory of constraints is a whack-a-mole, right? Where you'll actually address some of the technical debt constraint, you address some of the architecture constraint, and then you'll be, you know, what will be staring you in the face is the business debt. So I'm you know, so glad you bring that up because in the end, if some of those things aren't addressed, they're actually the, the root or the source of different aspects of debt that the teams are dealing with themselves, right? If they're still stuck customizing this particular application for eight different regions, rather than moving to a common platform or making things like search, a common platform that the regions consume, a common service, you might not be able to unlock that without actually addressing the business debt. So easier said than done. How do you, <laughs> how have you been approaching the business, business debt side of it? Again, it's partnership. It's partnership. I mean, I I think you know you can't be thinking like the, the IT team and the business team. You know, you've one team and you've one business imperative, and if whatever your goal is, I think you just need to look at that. Again, I think it takes courage and leadership from everyone in that team. You know, and usually you're sitting with a, an individual who is effectively that business owner of that book of business or that that business problem, and you want to really get behind. You know. Like what's the, what's their short-term, long-term goals? Where do they need to take? And sometimes, you know, there's a, a simplification effort in that kind of business process. Sometimes it's a you, you reimagine it with innovation. Other times, there's there's a kind of like a a refactoring effort to kind of tidy up some downstream technical debt. You know, you, you don't really know, but I think that the first point to that is sit down with with that kind of a business owner. I'm not using the word stakeholder there. I think that's important. The business owner, whoever is kind of owning that piece of business and saying, well, let's let's sit down as a team and figure out what are our options for doing next. So I, I think it's it's that honesty, courage, and kind of leadership to sit down and look at that right across the board. Like, you know, and I think as well, I mean, you, you talk about in the flow frameworks, you have different flows. I mean, the phrase we tend to use is journeys. We look at the different journeys within our, our enterprise and to say, how can we make this more efficient or effective? 
And I think you, you need to have that kind of holistic viewpoint of it. Because again, I mean, it's not just the software, there's a bunch of stuff, but I think it, it starts with that conversation about, okay, what, what, what's the business imperative here? And then you work your way back from that. Yeah, exactly. And David, you said so well, as you, you sit down, it's one team. And then, as you said previously, you say, what's the goal, right? Is our goal reducing costs? Is our goal moving to market faster? Is our goal more of an innovation? Is our goal getting more conversions? And this is a goal that's set for the value stream, for the teams, and a common goal that you march through. And I think, again, I, the, the power of having that single goal, which, by the way, is something that evolves over time, right? I've, I've heard you talk about evolutionary architecture. You know, today, the goal might be you know, quickly innovating more features to market, but then, of course, the technical that might increase or your cloud costs might increase to the point where you actually now have to do some refactoring, re-architecture to get to that common goal of continuing to deliver value to the customer. So I think... Mm you know, your guidance on actually, again, making this in the end, it's making the, these trade-offs visible to the business owner, I think is, is what you're guiding others to. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think when the individuals in the technology team understand the kind of business domain, maybe you'll know, well, okay, we're going to see a spike in traffic in six months time. And we understand that we there's things we need to do ahead of time. You know, maybe there's going to be, there's some change coming up that, you know, it's, it's I think, I mean, I think we're getting away from it now. I mean, and you, you touch on it very well in project, the products. You can't have the attitude, we'll not do that unless we get a requirement. I mean, that doesn't work today. You know, you've got to think ahead and understand. You know, you've got to look ahead. You know, I think in insurance, there's certain things that we see are going to happen. There's different patterns year on year, but there's other things that are completely unexpected. So I think you need to, you know, be very flexible in, in how you need to effectively, you know, number one, you serve your customers first. That's number one priority. So what potentially could happen where you, and you don't want your systems to basically fall short in a time of need. So I, I think the, and you can't didn't play the, the contract game. Well, you didn't tell us we had a, maybe hit a million users in a day. You know, you can't sit and you can't play that game. I think you have to be, you have to look ahead and be preemptive and think what could potentially happen that I need to bake into the system. So I, I'm a big believer in the technology team understanding the business domain and figuring out what, what does this system need to do based on what we know may happen. Excellent. And so, David, I think that uh, we're at time right now, but I, I want to make sure that... Uh, for our listeners, some of what you've done and actually the, the technology parts of the journey, I think the amazing thing has been the way that you and the organizations have leaned into these new technologies and the results that you've seen. I actually do think it's important to understand and keep up with some of those key technology movements, right? Because that's what you put in place. And you were actually able to, after understanding how, you know, how this would meet the needs of the customer, where you end up on the orderly map, select the right set of technologies and the architectures that supported the flow and feedback needs of the business. So I hear that you're launching a blog where you're actually going to talk about some of those key technology practices. So if you could just tell us about that, because again, I encourage everyone to check it out and understand where these technologies are going because of how powerful they can be of of excelling this this flow and feedback loop. Yeah, well, we've, we've got a blog out called theserverlessedge.com. The serverless edge is more about being on the edge of technology. You know, what's the cutting edge of technology? And it's not really the, it's not really the latest version of a framework or component. It's what's the, what, what is the edge of the future of work, the edge of technology, the kind of that future-facing technology. And it's really, there's different business models that are currently evolving. There's different ways that we handle our technology. I think some companies understand it, but it's not well understood. I think a lot of people, when you mention serverless, they'll say, yeah, Lambda. 
you know, it'll turn into a lambda versus container argument, which is exactly not what it is, you know. So it, it's it's you got to elevate yourself above the technology and think about, you know, if I'm on the edge of technology, what does that mean? What does my company need to feel like? How do we how do we need to lead? Or do, how do we set ourselves up for success? What, what are the things we need to think about? I think there's a mindset if you're going to be on that kind of serverless edge that's really important to understand. And I think it's, it's quite difficult to unpick that from a lot of the press and news you see coming around. I, see sometimes, I think sometimes you need at least people to give you a bit of narrative or a bit of commentary about different things that are happening. Because, you know, once you get into the cloud providers and see a, a lot of the technologies, it gets confusing very quickly. Yeah. So what we're trying to do with the serverless edge is basically to put a commentary on that. For And you don't need to be a developer to read it. It's, we're, we're trying to be quite reach a broader audience. There is a different way of working. It actually sits very well with the future of work as well because you, you kinda, there's a much different way of working. And I think it's going to be a game changer for some companies. It's almost like what I'd call, it's the next level of cloud, whatever that's called. Yeah, I, I don't think serverless is a great name, but hey, it's what we've got. <laughs> well, it gets across you know, some of the, the key concepts, right? In terms of getting rid of that and differentiating heavy lifting, which I think you and I and, in our entire careers have felt what, that, what that's like and, and want everyone to feel a whole lot less of it yeah. and deliver Absolutely. more to customers. So. Yeah. I'm telling the story as well about you know, how to enable a serverless cloud center of excellence at reInvent this year as well, 2020. So that'll be a talk to look out for as well. Myself and um, Jessica Fang are, are giving that talk, which is a bit more detail about how to enable that serverless cloud center of excellence. Excellent. Well, David, any amazing and I really look forward to following the serverless edge as well. And any I encourage others to do so too. So it's it's great to have this out there. Again, this combination of technology and very forward-looking but very actionable architecture. And really, as you said, I completely agree that the next step of cloud, but a step the next step of cloud that you should be thinking about now and you should maybe just jumping straight into, as I think you've made clear through some of your successes. So any final thoughts to leave the audience with? I just think, I mean, I think it's worth looking forward. I, I do, I mean, I, something like Wordly Map, and I think it's a difficult technique, but I, I, I couldn't abdicate enough for actually sitting down with some leaders in your organization and kind of casting your mind forward. Because uh, I think there, there's a huge amount of change happening at the minute. And I think there's repercussions into your own organization, into your market, into your technology landscape. So I think actually sitting down and thinking ahead of, you know, where do we need to be? And actually, actually discovering the shape of that, and you know, and and how you think technology and your your business landscape may evolve, and kind of being ready for that. I think there's an awful lot of challenging frameworks around business strategy, but I'd be a huge advocate of worldly mapping because it's a fantastic way to actually see into the future. So, um, I would I would definitely have have a look at that. Okay, excellent. And my one recommendation on that is to bring your leading technologists into that discussion, because if you're doing it without that that kind of deep technological insight, I've seen this Morley maps end up end up in slightly different places than they should. So, but clearly, what you've done is is absolutely leading. So, thank you so much, David. And we'll check out the serverlessedge.com. Thanks, Mike. Really appreciate the time. Great chat. A huge thank you to David for joining me on this episode. For more, follow me in my journey on LinkedIn, Twitter, or using the hashtags MickPlus1 or Project to Product. You can reach out to David on LinkedIn or his Twitter, which is at DavidAnd393. I have a new episode every two weeks, so hit subscribe to join us again. You can also search for Project to Product to get the book. And remember that all author proceeds go to supporting women and minorities in technology. Thanks, stay safe, and until next time.